The legends are true. But overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Welcome to the Gravity Leadership Podcast. Gravity Leadership is a growing network of people who believe the center of the Christian life is the love of God revealed in Jesus Christ, and that learning to take love seriously is vital for how we practice discipleship, mission, and leadership. The Gravity Leadership Podcast explores, in practical ways, how to root our lives and our leadership in this love that holds all of us and everything together. Welcome back. You're listening once again to the Gravity Leadership Podcast. If this is your first time here, just disregard what I just said. But if you are coming back, then I was talking to you. Welcome I'm joined back. by my friends, Ben Sternke and Christy Penley. What up? Hey, everybody. Hi, hey, Matt. Hey, We Hi, were chatting a bit here uh, before we hit play about um, little turns of phrases colloquialisms, if you will, that indicate to everyone around you that you're somewhat of a jerkhead. <laughs> things not to say, basically, yeah, yeah, should yeah, be the are, list. Or a list of things to say with your friends, ironically. Ironically. Uh, when so you're what, trying to be just an ironic jerkhead. So, like, what did you just say? I, don't I, that was an actually ironic, say this. That was an ironic... Well, I, I, just said, I just said to Christy... Uh, uh, in I hope in an ironic way that did not indicate that I was an actual jerkhead. <laughs> Christie's, uh, Chris, we can't see Chris. So normally we use this software. We can all see each other while we're talking to each other. Now you guys are listening to us uh, through your, uh, you know, just on audio. But normally we can all see each other. But um, our software has d- disabled Christie's camera. <laughs> It's so funny. It does sound like a punishment. But it says, like, uh, camera is disabled due to slow internet connection. Video, And so it's still recording the video and it'll upload it, but it's... it's they can't see her me, Her camera's people. been disabled. We can't see her. We can only hear her, just like you. Um, so anyway, so it was just... And you, if you've listened to this podcast before, you know that Christy uh, has struggled <laughs> with internet mm-hmm. connection. Uh, internet is lame. It's, a, it's tons of stuff she can't do anything about. But... Um, after, after she just realized that we can't see her, I just said, well, Christy, let that be a lesson to you. <laughs> I don't know. Jerk uh, face. Because yeah, right, yeah. there's nothing you can do about it, really. You've let that be tried a lesson so to many you. times to get better internet. So. Uh, some of the other phrases that we've thought of that also indicate to everyone around you that you may, uh, you may be less cool than you think you are and probably mm. a bigger jerk face. Mm. Uh, the phrase, mm-hmm. do yourself a favor. Do yourself a favor. <laughs> right? This, yeah. Or just feel? flat yeah. out, listen mm-hmm. to me. Listen. <laughs> listen. Listen to me. 
Listen, Listen to me. <laughs> Enough uh, nonsense. Uh, you know what? One yeah. of the things that I uh, so this is a little. I'm going to give some more phrases here, and we'd love to hear the phrases that maybe you use <laughs> to ironically indicate to people that you're a jerk face. <laughs> but um, there was a old uh, Cartoon Network Adult Swim cartoon called Space Ghost, Coast to Coast. Uh, Space Ghost was a Hanna-Barbera cartoon from the 70s, and they basically turned him into like a late-night talk show host, and he would interview celebrities, and then they would yeah. like cut celebrity answers out and then put a cartoon in, and the cartoon would say, you know, things and the answers, whatever. Anyway, uh, one of the things that Space Ghost does on that, on that talk show is when he gets upset or like insecure, and he wants people to listen to him, he points to his mouth. <laughs> As he's you talking. can't see me though. If I point to my mouth right now, you can't know, even that, see me. That's As the fun talking. about having your camera disabled. <laughs> I feel like I Christy feel can like, no longer point to her mouth. I don't know. I've been doing that for twenty years, uh, just because I think it's hysterical. <laughs> just pointing to your mouth when you're talking. Uh, some other I'm phrases. Not, <laughs> Go ahead, Ben. Well, here's another space ghost phrase. This oh. isn't a jerk face phrase, but a space ghost phrase that I have started to use in my in my life is um, I don't even remember what it's from, which cartoon, or what the context was. But when uh, when he says like, "I need this for, for me,", me. <laughs> no, it's it's when he interviews Bjork. And oh, she's, right. you know, Bjork is a little bit out there anyway, right? She's like yeah, this Icelandic really musician. Yeah. And uh, anyway, they're supposed to be husband and wife. And uh, the the <laughs> plot line. They're supposed to be. Yeah, that, that, that's the plot that's line of the cartoon. Cut, yeah, cut yeah. the video. Yeah. And the plot line is that uh, Space Ghost came home and uh, found Bjork with a French DJ named Tricky sleeping with him <laughs> on their couch. And and so this Space Ghost is like, well, I'm going to start. Face. I'm going I'm yeah, to buy a new right. toaster. I'm going to buy a new toaster or something. And Bjork is like, um, and he goes, look, I need this for me. <laughs> for me. <laughs> uh, I say that too, dude, uh, all yeah, the time yeah. to my wife. Yeah. Um, sometimes this. not ironically. Uh, other phrases, uh, it's like I always say, <laughs> you know, like I, like I say all the time. Uh, the phrase, take it from me. Take it from me. <laughs> <laughs> Which is kind of like, it's kind of yeah. like riffing off of the, Listen to me. <laughs> Listen to me. Right. And then, uh, and then the the old. Uh, uh, I happen to know. I happen to know. Yeah. <laughs> that, that one. That one's my favorite. That one. Uh, we probably quoted this in an introduction to the podcast before, but it's one of from one of my all time favorite episodes of King of the Hill. Um, yeah. 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 I happen so to know. Anyway, uh, happen and then, and then, and then another another phrase I just thought of is if I've said it once, I've said it a hundred times. <laughs> like I just who's who 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 speaks like this in normal yeah. and it, you may be listening and uh you may be thinking I'm making fun of you I'm not really cuz I I talk like this too around my kids just so they know who's in charge Um <laughs> speaking of uh, how are you saying no no way no way There's to nothing to say <laughs> after that Speaking of kids <laughs> Speaking of yeah speaking of Oh, how about this? Speaking of using words. Oh, yes. You know who else uses See, words? There we go. Yeah. <laughs> oh, well, my goodness. You I'll guys, I this. needed this laughter. I did, too. I hope our listeners yeah. are laughing. I think they're no, laughing I at hope us. So. Uh, even if, if they're laughing in, at us, it's like, you know, I'm glad we can be the buffoons. <laughs> okay. The buffoons on That's your podcast right. feed. Um, gestures. Yes. Gestures. 
today, today, uh, actually, we're gonna like turn from like comedic and absurd to like profound, and you might get saved mm-hmm. during this podcast. Lisa Sharon Harper, I did, was with us today to talk about her book Fortune: How Race Broke My Family and the World and How to Repair It All. I actually. Uh, struggled with this interview because I wanted to talk about her book, but she kept riffing on things. And I was like, no, just, just go give her space. Let's have, do whatever you want. (laughs) She's a preacher. Yes. Right. It was so good. It was so good. I found myself like telling myself to breathe because I was just so interested in what she was saying. Yep. Yeah. So yeah. 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 It was a fantastic uh, interview. There were several times when, uh, when, uh, yeah, I think I, I think this is the interview. I just, I just said, yeah, that, well, now you're preaching and it's great. Mm. So, yeah. well, it was great. Yeah. Great. Well, and we have uh, some announcements get into here? it here. A couple essential blurbs. Um, one, if you are not, uh, on our, uh, email newsletter, I would encourage you to get on it. Uh, we'll send you an email every week with some curated links, uh, for that have been helpful for us. And these, these links can be all, uh, kind of over the place. Some of them uh, are sort of uh, explicitly, uh, Christian and sort of about leadership and, you know, that that kind of a thing. Um, but then others are just other other stuff that we're interested in. So the ones that we just sent out, uh, had some stuff about trauma bonds, how to notice, notice them and, um, extricate yourself from them. There's some stuff about spiritual, uh, there's some stuff about attachment styles. And Mm -hmm. there's a study that this, uh, these people did about attachment styles and our view, our view of God, Reminded me yeah. of our interview uh, on this podcast with Crispin Mayfield. Yes. So anyway, just lots of uh, lots of fun stuff. So uh, if you're not with us, please join us. Gravityleadership.com/slash/join. Mm-hmm. It's easy to easy to remember. Easy also, enough. we just uh, we just launched. We just started uh, the Gravity Commons, which you can find out more at gravity gravityleadership.com/slash/commons. And we just got off uh, our first learning lab. Um, just before this, before recording this, and uh, we talked about COVID. We talked about what we're learning in this mm-hmm. pandemic, and um, it was great. We had like 10, 10 people with us uh, in that learning lab, and I'm hopeful that more will continue to join us as more people join the Commons. But the Commons is a uh, online community of practice uh, for Christians to be able to connect and uh, to, to learn together. And so if you're interested in joining us for that, uh, there is a monthly fee or a yearly fee if you want to um, join us in the Commons. But uh, all the information's at gravityleadership.com slash commons. Hope to see you there. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Is that it? I think so. All right. Unless you well, guys want to announce anything else. Unless you guys thought of any more essential ridiculous words? phrases. Oh. <laughs> I, that's one of my spiritual gifts is I tend to be full of ridiculous phrases. <laughs> Unironically. But also, uh, yeah, well, yeah. maybe... Maybe we should, without any further, uh, you know, chatter. Without any further phrases. Do yourself get, a favor. Uh, get in, do yourself and, a favor and, and listen. Listen. And listen to this. Take it from Lisa. You're encouraging them to listen to someone else. Take it from Lisa. Take it from Lisa. You take this. Seriously, do. You take this yes. from Lisa. Yes. Do. If she's said it a thousand times. <laughs> yes. She said yes. it once. On the podcast. She Here said it, it is. once. She said it a thousand times. You know, yes. Lisa, if no, you're listening at the off chance, you sorry. really deserved a much better intro than this. And so we'll make it up to you. We'll have you back on the podcast, Lisa. That's right. We will. <laughs> Absolutely. And I she didn't do use any her. of those phrases. None of them. She, she's, no, she's so a, humble and kind. She's an incredible, incredible woman. All right. Yeah. Well, here she is. Yep. Yep. 
Lisa Sharon Harper, welcome to the Gravity Leadership Podcast. Thank you so much, Matt. It's really a privilege to be with you guys. I'm looking forward to our conversation today. Me too. We're talking about Lisa's book, Fortune, How Race Broke My Family and the World and How to Repair It All. Lisa is the founder of Freedom Road, which is a consulting group dedicated to shrinking the narrative gap, of which this book is obviously a key piece. Some of you are familiar with Lisa. She's written uh, several other books, including The Very Good Gospel, How Everything Wrong can be made right. Lisa, you continue that project of making things right in this new book, Fortune, which is essentially a, a telling the story of America's history with race through your personal family tree. I want to give you a second just to reflect on when did the idea of this book come into being and how long did it take you to write it? <laughs> Well, thank you so much, Matt. Um, I This book has been 30 years in the making. Um, literally began researching my family story with my mom um, in 1990, 1991. But, you know, she made me watch Roots every single time it came on before that. So in a lot of ways that I have to go back to Alex Haley's Roots to say that was really the seeds of my desire even to investigate my family's story. Um, I wanted to know who's our Kunta Kinte, you know, who's our, who's our Kizzy? Um, Kizzy became my auntie because I watched her so many times on on TV, on the TV miniseries. But then I realized, no, I don't really know who my Kizzy actually is. I want to know who that is. Mm. Um, and so, and also it was, it was one of the main ways that my mom and I bonded was through the searching of our family stories together. And so back in 1990, 91, um, I started and of course, back then, it was very rudimentary. It was just literally drawing a family tree and trying to put names and dates, although we didn't, I didn't have names. I only had like grandpop, great-grandpop, because my mom was just giving me the approximate times that they lived. And then we began to fill in some names. And then she began to do, actually, she started the research, the real research. She went down to the archives and just started looking for Henry Lawrence, because she knew that Henry Lawrence was her grandfather, my great-grandfather. And, um, and she didn't find him. Um, and it, but it turned out actually, she thought she didn't find him, but it turned out she actually did. And, but I, I was able to figure that out decades later. Um, uh, and then ancestry.com came around and it just made everything so much easier and DNA research made it that much more easy. So there've been ways that for African-Americans for such a long time, for all of our time. We haven't been able to go back past um, enslavement, past the Civil War, because we were not listed on the census. Um, but DNA makes us able to actually jump over that, jump over that that brick wall, and and make connections that we weren't able to make before. Then also there was that that really crazy discovery in our family. Um, that we actually had people on the census, on the fortune line of our family, that were listed by name before the Civil War. We were like, what is that about? Wait a minute. That means they were free. Huh? How are they free before the Civil War? So that took us into a whole other line of history, another line of the African-American experience, another line of our family tree, which we were able to trace back and... Um, 
ultimately goes back to a woman named Fortune and her parents, Maudlin McGee and Sambo Game. And yes, his name was Sambo. Yes, he was. But get this, <laughs> Sambo is an actual Senegalese name. And uh, it means second son. And this second son was boarded aboard a slave ship in on the Gambia River um, sometime around 1686. He, he landed in Maryland in, 18, in 1686, uh, only about four years after Maudlin McGee did, and they fell in love, had a child, and their child's name was Fortune. Mm. Mm. And that became the title of the book. Um, she's like your seventh mm-hmm. great-grandmother, I think, eh? Exactly. Seven times great-grandmother. Yes. You, Here's the you thing, have is set... that Fortune... Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, go, go ahead. ahead. Go ahead, Lisa. Well, I was going to say, here's the thing. Fortune, because she was mixed race, she was, her mother was Ulster Scott, an indentured servant. Her father was an enslaved African man. Her body absorbed the violence of the very first race laws in the colony of Maryland, which came only two years after the first laws ever on this, on this land, first race laws. And so, that's part of what was such a, like a, wow, no way. Like our ancestor, it's not only that we can just trace back that far, which is kind of amazing, but that because of her mixed race heritage, her body was a part of the racialization of our nation. Hmm. Yes. This is something you go into in your book about um, the untold story of black women's bodies in colonial and pre and pre-colonial and even post-colonial America, uh, because mm-hmm. of the erasure of of names and lineages not being recorded, because that was only afforded to to persons which were not black or native persons, right? Um, black women's well, not bodies even, became no, not even just not yeah, even just persons, because here's the thing: they were free. These were free mm-hmm. people. These were yes. free black people who. They just said they're not worth it. They're not worthy of being mm. recorded. It wasn't even, there was no real justification, just they weren't worthy. Only white bodies yeah. were worthy of being recorded. They were free people. Yeah. They were citizens, but they were not being, they were not worthy of having their births and deaths recorded. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Yeah, you, you have this comment in, your, in the beginning of the book that previous generations, um, you're of, I think you're speaking of, of your family, did not have the luxury of memory. Would, would, you unpack, mm-hmm. would you unpack why memory is a luxury and in what ways did your family not have that luxury to do the work you were doing in this book? Well, it's actually really well illustrated on the family tree. Um, and on the first pages of the book, there's actually an amazingly beautiful illustration of the family tree. Um, and it's not everyone on the tree that we know of, but it's the people who are spoken of in the book. Um, and at the top of the tree, you'll see Fortune and Maudlin McGee and Sambo Game. Um, and the only reason we can go back that far on that line is because that line stretches back to a white woman. Because that line stretches back to a white woman the people who came from that line were indentured, not enslaved. And the indenture has a timestamp. So after they're indentured, they were set free. 
So then there's all kinds of paper trails for them after that time. There's tax, I mean, tax papers, there's um, court documents where they took people to court or they were taken to court. There's all kinds of, but for people who were enslaved on the Lawrence line, on the Ballard line, on the Weeks line, there's no documentation once you get past that point of abolition. When you go back in time past abolition, when they were enslaved, there's no documentation. Because that, Matt, that was the time when they were not considered persons. They were not considered human. They were considered three-fifths of a human being, according <laughs> to the law in America, right? And that was yeah. that was the first gerrymander in American history, right? Where, right? where we gerrymander the South, giving them more representation in Congress than they actually deserve by, by counting their enslaved people who will not get a vote as three-fifths of a human being. So- yes. The yeah, there you go. <laughs> yeah, well, and and that's and that's the that's there's a deep irony here, right? So the three fifths was mm -hmm. a compromise between the North, who didn't right. want to have black people count as population, and the South, At all. who, who, who actually who, the South who erased black people unless they could leverage them for greater political power, and then they wanted to count them, and and how this yeah. gets inscribed and ensconced in a law. You said something earlier. I miss it in your book. You said. The first racial law in Maryland came two years after the first law, so we don't even we we can't even really separate the the trajectory of the law in the New World and the law functioning to ensconce and reify racial hierarchies in the New World. It seems like they emerged well, in in tandem together. Well, it's that. Well, I might have misspoken that. So it's two years after the first race law was ever okay. crea created on this soil, but it was mm. on Virginia soil. So the colony of Virginia crafted their race law in 1662, and Maryland came two years later in 1664 crafting theirs. And the thing is, they, they were, law is always meant to solve a problem, a perceived problem on the ground. You never, people don't create laws just because there's a philosophical question in the air. No, they create laws because there's a problem to be solved on the ground. And that was never so clearly illustrated than through race law. So in Virginia, they crafted the very first race law in 1662 in order to solve the problem of what are the what's the status, the slave or free status going to be of these mixed race kids that are running around who their fathers were... British citizens, white guys, British citizens, and their mothers were enslaved black women. So now they have not only mixed race, but they're also status mixed. So what will the status of the children be? So in Maryland, they solved, I'm sorry, in Virginia, they solved that problem by saying, okay, we're going to change the status of how citizenship goes down through this family. In according to English law, citizenship was passed down by the father. Well, they were British citizens then. And according to British law, you can't enslave a fellow British citizen. And also you can't enslave a fellow Christian and people were getting baptized all the time, like you're baptizing their enslaved people. So Elizabeth Key, a, a mixed race woman whose father was a British citizen, took her case to court. She said, I'm a British citizen and I'm a Christian. Look, I have my baptism papers. My dad made me got, get baptized. And she won. She won her case. And then many 
followed after her and said, oh, but my dad's a British citizen too. Uh, and I've been baptized. I shouldn't be able to be baptized or be, be enslaved. And so they also won. So the white male planter class who were also the legislators in the House of Burgess said, oh, wait a minute, we're losing our money. Mm-hmm. We have to do something about this. They had a choice in that moment. This is really one of the most critical lessons of my research that I that I am so convinced of now. And it's the reason why I think we can we can repair what has been broken. Because there have been a series of choices that have been made from the very beginning to right now. Mm. From the very beginning, we have been making choices at, at these critical junctures. This was one of those junctures, actually one of the first junctures, 1662. Will they decide to simply to, it's already, it's already unjust to even have indentured servants or to have this slave-free even question, but will they decide to allow their people to actually um, have a timestamp on their, on their indenture? Will they decide that, yes, actually, the, the enslaved children of these British citizens are British citizens, and so, yes, they can become free and create a free class of mixed-race people? Will they do that? No, because money was their object. That's what they thought would bring their flourishing, and it didn't matter if others had to be subjugated to do it. So they said, no, what we're going to do is we're going to change how people are um, determined to be citizens or not. And instead of taking it through the line of the father, we're going to take it through the line of the mother. In Maryland, they did it. It was a slightly different problem they were solving. In Maryland, they were solving the problem of white women, indentured servants, mostly Ulster Scott, some Irish as well, coming over and falling in love with black enslaved men, African enslaved men, and having children, mixed race kids. So of course, the white male planter class was like, we can't have that. So they outlawed it. And this is what they said. Christy, you hear me here? This is what they said about you, girlfriend. They said, if you were to fall in love with an enslaved black man, then you yourself, white woman, would become the enslaved property of his master. Wow. A slave, not indentured. You would become a slave until the death of your husband. And any children that you have through that union, through that marriage, marriage, meaning before God and all, those children would then become enslaved in perpetuity, meaning their children and their children's children and their children's children. So that was 1664. That was the very first Maryland race law. Mm. And they found just a few years after that, they look up and they're like, uh, they had unintended consequences in this Catholic colony. They said, uh, actually, we're realizing now that planters are forcing their indentured um, white women to marry and have children with black enslaved men, African enslaved men, in order to get free labor in perpetuity. So then they changed the law again. They said, uh, you know, okay, no longer are we going to put the the keys to enslavement or indenture in the hands of the planter, because obviously they have their own interests to fill. Instead, we're going to put the keys to enslavement or indenture in the hands of the church. Mm. So the church be- then became the arbiter of enslavement mm-hmm. or indenture. They became the auction block of Maryland. Yeah. The church. Yeah. Maybe you can talk to that too. I mean- 
the church was like the primary auction block in the state, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. Um, t- talk to us a little bit about what what role does religion play in the abil- in the ability to heal and repair mm. the state of races rela- relations in our country? Yeah. Like, how do we? Can you just double click on that a little bit? Yeah, I love that double click. I'll double click there. Let's go there. <laughs> <laughs> so the state, um, the church. It's funny, we have this separation of church and state, right, in our Constitution and our amendments, First Amendment. Um, but that, of course, came much later. Mm-hmm. The, the church actually was was a the primary partner of the state through the colonies and, you know, through the Revolutionary War. And the church completely split, every denomination split over the question of slavery, um, in the years after the Revolutionary War, leading up to the Civil War, so literally every Congress, every denomination, the Southern Baptist Convention exists because it chose to in- encase slavery in its theology. Mm-hmm. But it didn't end there, and there have always been moments of conscience in the American Church. Um, the Quakers in the 1700s, even as far back to the 1600s, the Quakers began to to have a conscience and then outlaw slavery among their people. But there were still Quakers, like two Quakers who owned my family, hello, on two different lines of my family, one in Barbados and the other in South Carolina, that they were owned by Quaker people. Hmm. Um, One, the Ballards in South Carolina, we believe, were Quakers that went south into South Carolina, leaving their Quaker faith in order to maintain their slaves, um, maintain slavery in South Carolina. And then the Weeks family in in Barbados is the one that my, my father's line comes from, the Weeks line. And so, you know, they made choices. Quakers made choices. Um, You had Jonathan Edwards II back in 1791 preached a sermon uh, for a women's women's abolition group um, on abolition. So we know that Jonathan Edwards, though he never preached on it, his son did. And Mm. then the rise of the the Second Great Awakening, which was catalyzed by the formation of the Black Church, hello, um, Mm. had Charles Finney calling people to the altar and saying, if you are going to come into the kingdom of God, then you have to renounce slavery. So we've always had moments and voices of conscience in the midst of a larger um, church body that is either nominal, as in they're not saying anything about it, and so allowing injustice to continue, or, um, or actually going all in trying to justify the injustice through the scripture as the Southern Baptists did. That didn't end with the Civil War. It continued through um, through Jim Crow and the Civil Rights Movement. It continues to this day. Mm-hmm. So the, the, the place where the church has the greatest capacity to make a difference now is to first do the work of asking the question, where did we stand in yes. all of these these junctures. Where were we during the yes. time of abolition? What was our stance? What was our stance in the, in the when Reconstruction was being deconstructed? When mm-hmm. Reconstruction was coming to an end, what was our stance? Did we play a part in the protection of Black bodies in the South? Or did we escape like many Quakers did, just go right back up north and say, oh, well. Mm. Um, what was our role in the, during the time of the civil rights movement and the push against Jim Crow segregation? Were we nominal? Did we just say nothing? 
In other words, did we allow the injustice to happen or were we actually fighting? Did we walk with Dr. King? Um, Mm -hmm. Or did we form an entire denomination, PCA, in order to uh, in order to entrench mm. white white yeah. male supremacy and segregation? Mm. Yeah. Where were we in the fight um, for Bob Jones University? Were we fighting in order to protect segregation on Bob Jones University's campus, um, like Jerry Falwell and um, and Pat Buchanan and Jim Baker? Mm. Were we were we up there with? Um, with with them, or were we like Jimmy Carter fighting to have um, a separation, a true separation of church and state, and actually trying to get um, uh, to do away with poverty in America? So actually trying mm-hmm. to actually bring up all people yeah. in America, including people of African descent. Yeah. So where were we, and now where are we? Where are yes. we now? Are we now on the side of those who would who are trying to make America white again? Hello, I'm saying it. Yes, I'm saying it. Are we now on the side of those who are trying to dismantle democracy in order to protect white male supremacy? And what do I why do I say that? Because you're trying to dismantle democracy, stop people from voting so that you can maintain power, gerrymander yes. yourself into maintaining yes. white male power. Are you where are you now? That's the question. Mm. There are choices. There have always been choices. That's why in the book, Very Good Gospel, I said, it's there is a possibility for all things to be made right. It is on the cross. It is in the resurrection. It is with repentance. And at the back end of Fortune, on the last three chapters of Fortune are all about how to repair. And it starts with that truth-telling, Christy, but then it goes to repentance to actual repentance. And that's what we mean by restitution and reparation. Reparation is simply repenting, turning and walking another direction, a different direction. What does that look like? Like, teach me, what does that look like in a healthy, real, loving way? It is love to see, to recognize, to bow to the image of God in the other. And that's where the relationship broke. The relationship first broke when that first explorer landed on the coast of South Africa or Barbados or Virginia and looked at the indigenous people there and said, you are not meant to rule here, I am. We are, right? The, that's where the relationship broke. When you fail to recognize and bow to the call of God on all humanity to exercise dominion on land, all, and assumed that only people of European descent were called to exercise dominion and really just your nation, whatever that nation was, whether it was Portugal or Spain or you know England, whatever, And so the repair has to reverse that. The repair, the process of repair has to reverse that. It has to bow to the image of God and the other. It has to honor it. It has to recognize their call and capacity to exercise stewardship of their own bodies and their own futures. So 
like David with the Gibeonites, you know, when David is, is David, I love, I just love the scripture so much because, you know, in some ways you just got to say, this has definitely happened because this is just too crazy to have not, you know, to have not happened or boy, these are great storytellers. Like, but where, where he's like, he's talking to God, like, God, why do we have a famine in the land? What's going on with this famine, God? And then there's a knock at the door, knock, 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 you know, Mr. David, we have a bone to pick with you. And the Gibeonites come to him and say, uh, Saul tried to kill all our people. He tried to commit genocide on us. And David's like, oh, that's why there's a famine in the land. Oh, okay. So he says, he says, he says something that we should say to people of African descent and native, native descent all over the world, indigenous descent. We should say, as David said, what do you say that we should do so that things will be made well with you. Mm. And then do it. Which is what David did. David doesn't even ask a question. He doesn't say, he could have done this. He could have said, ooh, thanks for that. I'll go back with my people. We'll figure out what to do. He could have said, um, okay, so what do you think? Okay, now can we negotiate that? Are you sure? That's like, that's kind of costly. I'm not really sure. You know, David could have clutched his pearls. and mm. But he didn't. It was costly what they told him to do. And yet he did it without asking one question. And what was God's response? And that's the key thing. Because if God didn't, God wasn't about that. God wouldn't have honored it. God would have been like, okay, I'm not lifting this famine yet, y'all, because you didn't really get it. But God's response was to lift the famine. This podcast is brought to you by Gravity Leadership Academy, our 10-month online training intensive for Christian leaders who want to root their life and leadership in God's love and bring lasting transformation to their culture. In Gravity Leadership Academy, you'll learn the real-life practicalities of how to notice God's presence and activity in and around you so you can participate more fully in God's life and mission and open up space for those around you to do so too. We've worked really hard to make this training in missional leadership practical and doable. To find out more about Gravity Leadership Academy, visit gravityleadership.com slash academy. Lisa, um, this, is, um, this is great. Um, I, I'm loving um, just your very clear-eyed prophetic uh, call to repentance and reparations and repair, but also like you're, you're so filled with hope as well. Um, that it's, it's, um, uh, yeah, it's just incredibly, um, inspiring for me. So thank you. I I wonder if you could, um, you know, you write in your book that forgiveness is pure power. Um, but I, I oftentimes like when I look at how that word is used on social media, for example, it's oftentimes people throw it out there as a way of avoiding repentance or reparations, yeah. right? They say like, why do, why do we need to focus on the past? Why can't we just forgive and forget, mm-hmm. you know, like slavery was a long time ago. You know, I mean, all this, all the tropes yeah. that, that all I'm the sure things David didn't say to the Gibeonites, right? right. Hey, right. it wasn't yeah. me. Saul did it. Or why yeah, you keep Saul bringing up the past? Yeah. Right. This is why we can't heal Gibeonites. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so, <laughs> yes, yes. So anyway, so with that sort of like, uh, how would you how would you contrast what you mean by forgiveness if it's pure power with how it's oftentimes thrown around, you know, in in the discourse as a way of sort of avoiding accountability? So I was standing in the lime quarry 
on Robben Island um, in 2016, January 2016. And I was I had been invited there by Renee August, who was working with the warehouse, and she had invited 60 other faith leaders from all over the world to walk in the shoes of Nelson Mandela for a week, about five days. We literally mm. slept in the minimum security prison um, on Robben Island and then did a pilgrimage across the island and then had several days of conversations. And I was standing in the lime quarry when it all kind of became very clear to me. It hit me that the, the anti-apartheid movement was not just a movement for justice, but it was actually a movement to maintain, to protect, to retain their humanity, mm. because injustice is dehumanizing. Yes. Oppression is dehumanizing. Humans were not created for oppression. Oppression and poverty twist the image of God mm -hmm. in people. It crushes the image of God. It crushes the flourishing of people. And it interactions with evil um, twist the image of God, whether it is whether it is the interaction of evil that you are perpetrating or interaction of evil that you are receiving. So mm. you had had generations of people who had been on the receiving end of apartheid evil and had been dehumanized according to the law. So mm. that anti-apartheid movement was a movement, uh, a, a pro-human, a, a, a movement to retain and protect the humanity within them. I think that that is why, now the Lime Quarry was the place of dehumanization, by the way, which is one of the reasons why this all came to me there. They had to cut rock every single day and then move the rocks they cut to another, another part of the island. And then the next day, come back and move the same rocks back. So for, wow. for 17 years, Nelson Mandela moved the same rocks back and forth, back and forth, and cut the rocks that built the prison he sat in. He mm. had to cut the rocks that created his own imprisonment, y'all. That's called dehumanization. Yes, we know that yes. work should actually work for our flourishing. It should not yeah. work for our engagement, right? Yeah. So, yeah. so in the Lime Quarry, I start realizing, oh my gosh, Nelson Mandela was all about becoming human again, saving the humanity of his people. And maybe that is the reason why he called them to forgive. Mm -hmm. Because only a human can forgive. Mm -hmm. Only a human has the ability to release their oppressor from that which they cannot repay. Mm -hmm. And I think yes. that's the key piece. It's not saying, y'all, it's okay. And, you know, don't just go about, have your lattes, we're good. <laughs> that is the way yeah. that many white South Africans received that forgiveness. They literally mm -hmm. just went, oh, good. Okay, let's go have a latte. But that's not what it was really about. It was really for the sake of the yeah. black South Africans and South Africans that were called colored because until they released their oppressors, until they cut the tie between them, they would then be bound to them, saying, yeah. ante up, you've, you've got to repay, otherwise I am going to be, so, I, am, I am down. You have to ante mm. up and so that I can flourish. But if you cut the tie, if you forgive, Wow. Then you are free. You're yeah. free to flourish because God is God. Your oppressor is not. Mm. 
Yes. And then you turn yes. to God and you say, okay, God, now mm. you ante up. Yeah. And God wants to. God has cattle on a thousand hills, right? God has the ability mm -hmm. to ante yeah. up. Yeah. And the thing that I think is critical for us, especially in the evangelical world or the white Christian world, is to realize God cares yeah. about the deficit. The deficit is real. The deficit has caused deaths in families. It has caused families to go down a, a, a swirling drain into poverty. And poverty is hell on earth. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. This is anti-God. Mm -hmm. It is fighting against the kingdom of God. God cares. So if God cares, then we're going to be all right. Mm -hmm. We're going to be all right. But that does not mean that we do not demand reparation and repair yeah. of what can yeah. be repaired, yes. which is why the, the, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in South Africa had three points to it. Mm -hmm. One was the question of the truth-telling, right? Yeah. They had the, 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 the trials where the truth was told, and that was important, mm -hmm. important so that we get the history right so that we have a narrative that we can all trust, that we can all move forward on, that we've never done that in America. We've never had That's our right. truth commission yep. in America. We're scared to death of that. We are. What will we find? But you know what? We don't have to be scared. <laughs> That's why Jesus died on the cross yeah. mm -hmm. and was resurrected. Do we not actually have faith? Yeah. I mean, mm, isn't it something question. to say you were, quote, a Christian nation and then refuse, refuse to confess? Yeah. 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 Come on now. Yeah, we like our mm -hmm. sin abstract. Yeah. We like our total depravity generalized. Hello. Yeah. Hello. Right? Mm. Yes. Don't get specific in particular about the ways that all systems are impacted by sin. Don't label that mm -hmm. as, as systemic injustice or white supremacy. Mm -hmm. Let's just keep it in generalities and then we repent in generalities. Right. Mm -hmm. Which means you don't really have to do anything in exactly. specific. Yeah. Exactly. And that means there's no cost. And if there's yeah. no cost, then, I mean, come on. Mm -hmm. Look, Jesus died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins. The spiritual penalty. Mm -hmm. But we still have to actually repent. He said, mm -hmm. he didn't just say, okay, y'all. It's good. You know, I'm about to get on the cross. You know, everybody keep on sinning. We're good. <laughs> no, he said, repent. Right. In fact, the yeah. very first thing he said in Mark was, repent and believe the kingdom of God is near. Repent. Yeah. Repent. Mm -hmm. What would it look like if America repented and believed mm -hmm. the kingdom of God was near? What would it look like if the evangelical church repented, returned, mm -hmm. and believed that the king of the kingdom of God, the brown Jesus, colonized Jesus, whose people were serially enslaved, was near. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What would they do? Yeah. Lisa, I'm struck by I'm struck by your words about forgiveness for those who've been under the thumb of oppression. Forgiveness is an empowering humanizing act. Yes. And I'm struck by on the other side for those uh, of us who have participated in or are part of people groups who have been the oppressor, that the truth telling and the reparations 
is the empowering, humanizing act. Yes. Where we could meet each other in that beautiful, I mean, truth and reconciliation gets at it, right? Mm -hmm. Where we could meet each other in that beautiful, humanizing act of saying, telling the truth about what happened and offering to repair Mm -hmm. and being met with forgiveness. I mean, that... It's, it is a beautiful picture. You know, it's funny. I, I love how you put that, actually, that it's a humanizing act to offer reparation. It is. And I yeah. think that part of the reason um, why I agree with that is because I think that the, the the most central sin of people, the core sin of people of European descent, is not actually to try to be superhuman, mm-hmm. but it's rather to try to be God. Mm. It's mm. literally been to try to rule over God. It's been to make declarations about who people are and what they deserve to say that my ancestors were three-fifths of a human being. Only God can determine that. Who are you to say that my ancestors were three-fifths of a human being? Who are you? Like, you know what I mean? Who are you to determine who was meant to be to rule on this land? To say that that so-and-so's ancestors were not civilized and so therefore do not have. That is to play God. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah. And it is it is an, a humanizing act yes. to then bow to God, yeah, to let God be God, mm-hmm. and to allow yourself to simply be human. Yes, mm. yes. And it's also very freeing. Yes. <laughs> I mean, really, no longer do you have to yeah. try to control everybody and everything. I mean, really, uh, you get yeah, to actually have faith yeah. that God can be God. <laughs> Yeah, it's good. Hmm. I feel like we're going to church here, Lisa. Well, yeah, great. <laughs> yeah. you got a preacher on, so there you go. Yeah, we do. I think it is good to name white supremacy. And you've mentioned, um, I mean, white supremacy works, I, I don't know how to, you would describe the relationship of this, but it works in the employ or in conjunction with mammon, right? So the reason why white supremacy had to yes. become a good idea was mm-hmm. because it, it was too expensive for it not to exist. Um, and the benefit and the gain financially was too great. And you kind of told the story historically with the passing of the laws um, here. And there's so much in the beginning of your book. I mean, we've we've done a lot of work here on this podcast to amplify and uh, reparations of truth about uh, white Christian church and our complicity and our silence in the face of white supremacy and even not even silence, but even even being complicit in using theology that was full of yeah. white supremacy. Yeah. Um, but you you say things in the first part of this book, Lisa, that I just had never thought of before, mm. um, including including you mentioned there's four what do you call them the four weapons of colonization. Mm. Um, and I think you name them as genocide, slavery, removal, and rape. Yeah. I wonder what struck, I guess I'll just share this and then I'll ask a question. What struck me was the fact I had never thought before of how women's bodies became a place of colonization. Oh, yeah. And almost, uh, they almost became financial f- baby factories for slave owners. And I, it just had never, I don't know, I think... Literally. I think the way you tell the story allowed me to... I mean, I had to put the book down several times and just lament mm. and grieve for these women and their mm. children. Mm-hmm. Um, but these, these four weapons of colonization, genocide, slavery, removal, and rape, how do you... 
How do you understand those things still at work today? In what ways do we see them? I mean, they're all through your family tree, but how do we see, are, are we past them or do we still live with their legacy? Do they still erupt in the present? Wow, Matt. Wow. What a great question. Um, first of all, let me just say that there's a really great book. It's kind of the critical book on the question of rape as as conquest. It's actually called Conquest by Dr. Andrea Smith. Hmm. You must read that book. That's the book. You got to read that book. Um, conquest. Rape has always been um, a, a way, a, a modus operandi of conquest, and for multi in, in different ways by different colonizing powers. Um, removal um, when they when when the colonizers um, looked at the land they said this land has to be cleared and so therefore um, we need to kill them off I mean literally that was the that was the policy of the American government was to was to commit genocide was to it's it's ethnic cleansing we see that today in ethnic we call it ethnic cleansing today back then it was genocide um, uh, we we got a little bit um, less brutal with it, you might say, toward the, the end of the 19th century. And instead of just simply giving um, blankets with smallpox on them and then killing off people that way, we then just, you know, rounded them up and made them go on to reservations. And so we removed them from the land. But again, it's so that so that white bodies can prosper. That's the point. It was so that white bodies can prosper. Um, enslavement was so that white bodies can prosper. You raped um, in African women so that white, so that your white bodies can prosper. Made mixed race kids um, that you enslaved so that white bodies could prosper. So the you know the question really is what are we doing now so that white bodies can prosper? Mm. <laughs> That's really the question. Right? Mm. What are we doing now so that white bodies can prosper? We're gerrymandering. Right. So um, you declared three fifths of a human being, you know, so that white bodies could prosper in the South. We're doing that now. We're gerrymandering. I mean, just carving up Texas, just carving it up, you know, so that white bodies can prosper. Yeah. Um, we're, what yeah. are we doing now? We're gentrifying cities so that white bodies can prosper. I mean, I moved in. I moved into my 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 um, grandmother and my mother's old neighborhood in South Philly, in order to 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 have black bodies move in. You know, so let's let's have a, let's have a stream of people moving back to the community, back to the neighborhood, so that some of these houses don't get bought up by people who are going to completely change it and completely um, disregard the history of the place and and change the names. They come in and they change the area. No longer is this just South Philly. No, now it's now you've got Newbold. What the heck? What is Newbold? <laughs> What the hell? That's that's the area that was like right above my grandmother's block. Now it's Newbold. That used to be just South Philly. Um, it, it was always Point Breeze. Nobody ever called it Point Breeze. But now I live in Point Breeze. I live one block from where my, where my mom grew up. I live one block from her from her school, from child school, the child school where where she learned that she was less of a human being. Um, that was South Philly. 
Now it's Point Breeze, right? So, and why? Because white folk moved in. There was a, a, a point in American history where white flight happened all over the country and white people moved out into the suburbs. And then in the 80s, when black people started having some money, you started having black folks move more into the suburbs. And then white people moved further out into the second <laughs> ring of the suburbs, just trying to get away from the black folk who are now coming, right? White folk are always running from black folk. But now, now that you have the 80s where you had the drug wars, the 90s where you had imprisonment and you had whole communities get absolutely gutted by the drug by the drug wars, infiltration of drugs into our communities, by the way, which has been admitted to by FBI agents and, and, and such, um, by the mafia where they just allowed the mafia just basically look the other way in order to justify going in and breaking up black communities and, 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 and um, imprisoning the men for the flourishing of white bodies. Um, those neighborhoods were gutted. What happens when you have 1.5 million black men missing in America? You have gutted communities. Mm. According to the New York Times report, which a few years back, they reported 1.5 million black men are missing because they're either dead or in prison because of the drug wars of the 80s and 90s. Mm. So what happens? You get gutted communities. What happens when you get gutted communities? You get opportunists who come in and buy up those communities and now sell them at a massive profit to white families who want to be closer, you know, and then you get dog parks and you get coffee shops and you get Whole Foods and Starbucks, all of which are now no more than four blocks from where I'm standing right now. Um, But if you came here, and I did, actually, I came here, ironically, I came here to speak at my cousin's church. He was the pastor of, of a church right around the corner. And um, he and it was my first time ever speaking outside of InterVarsity when I was on staff with them. He asked me to come speak for his church, and I did. And I remember riding past Grandmom's old house, which is like two, three blocks from where his church was. And and he and I'm like, where is everybody? I mean, all of the homes were literally gutted, like broken windows, no doors. Just it looked like bombs went off in this neighborhood. Mm. Why? Because the, the the community had been neglected for decades, decades, waiting, waiting. I guess for the moment when it was all low enough for white folks to come in and make a profit, yeah. which they did, yeah. and continue to do. So why? What do we look for? Gentrification for white bodies flourishing. Yeah. Um, you know, you can go down the line. You can go down the line. Yeah, it occurs to me that this is also how whiteness works. Yes. The rounding up of criminals and putting them into prison, the redevelopment of neighborhoods. We have these myths around these happenings that valorize and vindicate yes. them as yes. good. Yes. But I think, Lisa, the good work you're doing for us is to pull back just a few more layers on these good narratives and expose Mm. them unto what? Mm. Who pays and who benefits? And and I Mm. think this is, I mean, this is, maybe, maybe it's the difficulty is that we can maybe see handing a blanket of smallpox to a native indigenous person is wrong. 
but we can't see the more insidious, subversive, subterranean practice of um, bleeding a community dry of men, incarcerating them, and bleeding them dry with loan places, and bleeding them dry with food deserts. And then once they are— And no education. And no education. Mm-hmm. And then when they evacuate the land, we buy it cheap and sell it expensive and make money. For the flourishing of white bodies. And that is literally, that is exactly what colonization is. So, you know, we're like, oh, we're, we're, you know, we're past the colonial. No, 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 no. Mm -hmm. We are colonizing still. We rebranded it. You rebranded it and called it gentrification. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Well, so, yeah. So now what? (laughs) Now what? So what now? I mean, what now? We repent. Yeah. Yeah. That's what it takes. Yeah. And the thing is, we're so used to, we're so used to repenting for our personal sin, right? Because that's what and yeah. and who benefits from that? Who benefits from, from the from the biblical narrative that sin is only personal? You know, mm. that is that's a narrative that is held to with the grip, I mean a white, literally a white knuckled grip within the mm. Southern Baptist Convention. Mm-hmm. Systems can't can't sin. You can't have mm. you can't have systemic sin. Only person only individuals can sin. Mm-hmm. Well, who benefits from that narrative? Yeah. Yeah. White men do. The people and, who and built the systems. The people who <laughs> built the systems and who benefit from the systems today. Yeah. But that is not that is just not true in the scripture. When when yeah. when Moses goes to Pharaoh, he doesn't say, Pharaoh, you have to personally repent of how you feel about, you know, um Jewish people. No. Mm-hmm. He says, let my freaking people go. Like, you know what I mean? He <laughs> says, let them go. Your policy mm-hmm is crushing the image of God. Stop your policy. Repent of your policy. That's what needs to happen today. Yeah. Yes. Amen. Amen. Lisa, we could talk to you all day, um, but uh, you have an adorable dog and other things to (laughs) to take Um, Ditto. uh, The book, again, is called Fortune, How Race Broke My Family and the World and How to Repair It all. Uh, It's one of the best books I've read all year, Lisa. And Mm -hmm. waiting for a book that brings together kind of solid history and then making it personal, Mm -hmm. making me care about people rather than just ideas and facts and data. And the book Mm -hmm. is just brilliantly written. Your heart for Jesus and your heart for truth come out on every page. And so thank you Mm -hmm. for this gift. Thank you, Matt. I really appreciate that. If people want to find you um, out in online, how would they do that? Are you available? Lots of ways to connect, folks. Um, just go to lisasharonharper.com and sign up for our newsletter. Um, in fact, uh, we'll be opening a Substack newsletter pretty soon, most likely following um, Black Fortune Month, which is another way that you can hook into what we're doing all month in February, Black Fortune Month. We are reading the book together. We are um, logging into online events together in order to go deeper into the book. And then at the end of the month, we're going to be doing a big advocacy push. We're going to be pushing for the repair and the truth-telling in our nation. So, you know, so join us and you can also join at freedomroad.us so that we have an institute if you want to go deeper and webinars on race and justice and equity, you can go deeper there. Excellent. And of course, online and, you know, all the different social media. Great. Lisa Sharon Harper, Lisa S. Harper at Instagram and Twitter. Thank you, Lisa. Bless you. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. 
Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Gravity Leadership Podcast. Our show is produced by Ben Sternke, Matt Tebby, and Ben Hardman. Aaron Sternke does our mixing and mastering. You can check out his work at aaronsternke.com. If you find our podcast helpful, share it with your friends in person and on social media. And don't forget to rate and review us online as well as subscribe so you don't miss an episode. You can join our Gravity community for free at gravityleadership.com slash join. You'll get our latest content delivered straight to your inbox, as well as an email most Fridays with curated links to articles we found interesting or helpful. To join us, go to gravityleadership.com slash join. And hey, we'd love to hear from you. Ask a question, make a comment, send us an idea, a recommendation, recipe, whatever. You can email us at podcast at gravityleadership.com. Catch you next time. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.